Welcome to The Pestle, reviewing and breaking down movies to look for insights into the movie-making process. Hosted by Finding Nemo. Let's dim the lights and eat some sushi. Welcome to The Pestle, everyone. Today's show is brought to you by the NSA, taking your dictation 24 hours a day since 2001. Welcome to The Pestle. My name is Wes. And this is Todd. And this is a show where we like to, well, first I'll explain, we're called the pestle, um, which is like a mortar and pestle, P-E-S-T-L-E. I think sometimes people hear pestle and they're like, what is going on? Um, but that's what our, our little art is all about. Um, we like to take movies and grind them apart and see what we can learn and make something else with them. And along the way, in order to accomplish this thing... <laughs> We have to spoil everything. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So um, if you haven't seen The Social Network, um, climb out from under your rock and go watch it and then listen to what we're going to talk about because um, we're going to be talking about a lot of little details uh, that are going to give everything away. Spoiler, it's about Facebook. <laughs> I'm just going to go ahead and say that right now. <laughs> Today's episode, we're going to talk about the audio and music. I think mm-hmm. Todd will probably have something to say about that. A little bit. And also Aaron Sorkin's tropes, um, things that I always, after watching so many films, you can't help but notice these things that he does. Um, we'll discuss David Fincher's cinematography style, uh, ways the plot is subtly underscored throughout the film. Um, and I guess underscored could be a pun or double entendre. I'm not sure what that would qualify as, but there's other ways too, not just musically and audio wise. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm also going to do some discussion on Sean Parker watching it this last time. I found some really interesting things about him that I'd never really noticed before. And I've seen this thing like about the character, or about the, the person, uh, the character, there's things okay. about the person that's always bothered me about this film, but, okay. um, yeah, specifically about the character and the way he's presented. It's pretty right. cool stuff, I think. So I'm going to lean a little bit on your on on you on this, other than the score, just because I really want to know. I, w- I want to learn from you on this. Like I want to learn about the cinematography. I want to learn about like because I have there are moments where I'm I notice things uh, like in the rowing scene and, mm. and stuff. I don't know how that's done. But it it's incredible, and just doing it for that one scene, like you know why, and like you know things like that. Yeah, so, I'm excited to talk yeah, about. We'll it. dive into it. Uh, let's let's just start with the synopsis here. Uh, so, uh, a Harvard student, Mark Zuckerberg, creates the social networking site that will become known as Facebook, but is later sued by two brothers who claimed he stole their idea, and the co-founder who was later squeezed out of the business. Uh, it's directed by David Fincher, the one, the only. God, that guy's amazing. Written by Aaron Sorkin, and it's based on the book by Ben Mesrick. Thank you. Uh, and it's starring Jesse Eisenberg as Mark Zuckerberg, Andrew Garfield as Eduardo Saverin, Army Hammer as the Winklevi, Rooney Mara as Erica Albright, who's fantastic, uh, Rashida Jones, Max Mingella, and Josh Pence as Army Hammer playing the Winklevi. Were you leading them on for six weeks? No. Then why didn't you raise any of these concerns before? It's raining. I'm sorry? It just started raining. Mr. Zuckerberg, do I have your full attention? No. Do you think I deserve it? 
What? Do you think I deserve your full attention? I had to swear an oath before we began this deposition, and I don't want to perjure myself, so I have a legal obligation to say no. Okay, no. You don't think I deserve your attention? I think if your clients want to sit on my shoulders and call themselves tall, they have a right to give it a try, but there's no requirement that I enjoy sitting here listening to people lie. You have part of my attention. You have the minimum amount. The rest of my attention is back at the offices of Facebook, where my colleagues and I are doing things that no one in this room, including and especially your clients, are intellectually or creatively capable of doing. Did I adequately answer your condescending question? I remember I rem the first time I saw that clip was bef before the movie even came out. It was like part of a teaser. Mm. And I was blown away i was like oh my god i want to see this and, and then i realized that aaron sorkin was writing it and i thought okay that makes total sense i mean he has the the this way of like creating this tension in just dialogue i mean obviously the music helped in that scene but in just the dialogue you're like this guy i want i want to watch what happens with this guy you know absolutely so i remember sitting down to this movie though and thinking I have no idea what's about to happen because I'm the kind of person who, once I decide I'm going to watch a movie and with Fincher, it's a guarantee I'm going to go watch every one of his movies yeah. that I'm going to start avoiding the previews just so I can go in and experience it soup to nuts and, and have no expectations. And the only preview I'd really seen of this was that teaser. It was the very first teaser where they're creating this collage, this mosaic of images and you have the creep Oh, yes. Song, oh, sung yeah. by like a children's Radiohead, choir. Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. And it was just like, that. oh my God. Yeah. What is he doing with this story? And obviously, we were not disappointed. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> it's such a good film. I mean, I, I out of 10, I'd probably give it an eight and a half. Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, I want to give it a nine, but there's probably like other, other movies where I'm like, no, that's a nine. Right. Know? Yeah. You save a nine. Yeah. For save something else. Save <laughs> nines and higher for like, like the, the holy, you know what? Like, yeah. Like desert Island kind of stuff. But yeah, easy 8.5. Easily. Yeah. I completely agree. Yeah. What do you like about this film? I know the first time walking out, I think we were just kind of like, that was amazing. We didn't really have, I mean, we, we, I remember discussing the music with you afterwards and we were like, dude, Trent Reznor. Oh my God. Did not, I know at the time that he did the score? We didn't know until the credits at the end. Okay. And then okay. we were like, oh my God, but Trent Reznor the did whole this? time. And okay. So the, the, the music, or I'm just going to call it a score because mm -hmm. yes, there's pieces and, and, and stuff. And he goes back to certain, um, like the piano part at the beginning, he goes back to that throughout the oh, entire the, that film. Theme, yeah. That theme, uh, so, but I'm going to call it a score, uh, because this was the first time he ever scored a film ever. Holy crap. So they came to him and they said, we this is, we want you to score this film. And, uh, uh, he was like, well, I've never done that. I, I don't know how to do that, you know? Uh, and so he was nervous going into it, but they said, it's fine. We're, we'll figure it out. We just want you. This is this is this is your story to tell, right? Uh, so they gave him all the leeway that he, a guy like him, needs as an artist. He's he is very known for like like hating labels <laughs> and hating anybody who's telling him what to do. He thinks that that an artist 
needs to be given room. I mean, if you've, if you, we were watching the Defiant ones the other day and he's on there a little bit, but if you don't give the artist room, then you don't get the best of the artist. And so, um, they gave him all the room that he needed. And he worked with a couple other guys, one guy in particular, but, uh, to do it. And I remember they were, I watched a little, little documentary on, on it. And he was really frustrated. He could not find the right sound, right? For this, there needed to be a theme throughout the, the movie that he would go back to, and he could not find it. He, he had kind of like a, a, little, a little thing that he, like a, a notes that he liked in the order that he liked, but he didn't know what sound it was. And it turned out to be a piano. Uh, but he, you know, he's so digital. He doesn't really go to a whole lot of analog stuff a whole lot. So it was like one of the last things that he tried and it just, just turned out to be perfect. So if you, if you watch the movie throughout, um, when, uh, throughout the movie, it starts to get darker. It starts to get a little bit more intense. So at the beginning of the movie, you just hear this like almost pad like sound, this, and then you hear the piano over it. And it's just that little sound, and it's just the piano, and it's very simple. You listen to that stuff at the end of the movie, and there is a wash of all of these things. And so throughout the movie, it, he just starts adding things whenever he goes back to that. And he goes, he goes back to that, um, that theme song, we'll call it, uh, at, at certain very important parts. Like if something really important happens, like in the beginning, they break up. That's very important, and we start hearing that theme. So, um, and then later on, when he finishes, uh, I think I think it's when he finishes the fir- Facebook for the first time, you start hearing it again, but it's a little washier. And then throughout the movie, you hear it more and more and more. But he really wanted to be like you were talking about earlier. He wanted to be understated. Mm-hmm. He wanted it to to be very. It's kind of like what I would do, I think, if I did a, a score for this. I would, I would like a lot of pads, a lot of like long notes, you know, that mm-hmm. that allow the the dialogue to create the tension uh, on top of the 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 score or the the pad that's going on, you know. Absolutely. And he, um, anyway, so it, it was a lot of trial and error, he said, and it was really probably the hardest thing he'd ever done but it's also one of the most fulfilling things he ever done because he's a very visual guy too and so being able to create something that that brought some uh, an already like beautiful thing visually to life even more was like it just meant a whole lot to him it was so it's just a really great story of a guy who's never done something before and then just knocks it out of the park the very first time and now he's just doing it over and over again yeah and he's done other things what what um He's done a couple others. Since He's worked then. with Fincher. I, I want to say he worked on the girl with the dragon tattoo. Yes. Um, yes, yes, yes. I think you're absolutely right. The that style plays very much directly in with the uh, the my last short film that you scored, uh, where we ended. Yeah. It was very much layered, long notes, finding moments to introduce tension and other moments to to relieve the tension. And we worked, you know, hand in hand on yeah. like working through some of these beats. And I was actually going to release it uh, last week, and then all hell broke out in, the, in America. <laughs> I was yeah. like, this feels like this is not right an time. inappropriate time to, yeah. to release something. <laughs> <laughs> all right, maybe next week, then. Maybe next week, yeah, we'll see. <laughs> but he does such an incredible job of not only that, because he's doing that throughout the film, right? These subtle moments and ambient tones, and, and I completely agree, that is score. What he's doing is scoring. Um, 
and it's interesting, Sorkin is well known. If you talk to anyone who's ever acted in his scripts, maybe with the exception of Moneyball, I feel like every film or TV show I've seen Sorkin write has a musical quality with yeah. the dialogue, right? Totally. It's zippy, it's quick, and it's bouncing around, and I've read stories about him reading it aloud to himself, you know, just to, to hear whether or not he's getting the rhythms right or if it plays well. But along with that, there's also these moments that they use music and tones to punch. Like even in that clip we just played a minute ago, um, whenever he says, no, you don't have my full attention. Mm-hmm. Boom. Boom. And like that's just one more part of the rhythm of this script and film. Yeah. And it's all playing and and. I mean, I guess Fincher is the ultimate conductor here, but it plays so beautifully. Okay, I'll back up just a moment because I also want to talk about that opening scene. Okay. And what I love, and he does this, I think, a couple times throughout the the film and throughout his projects. It's really well known, that opening scene in the bar with Erica and Mark sitting and talking. The conversation begins with the logos on the screen still, right? You're looking at whoever it is, New Line or Warner Brothers, I forget um, who distributed, yeah. but you're, you're looking at these logos and suddenly you, you hear the music, dum, wow, wow. And then yeah. you hear uh, Mark start talking. Yeah. And from there, it's like a six or seven minute scene and it feels like a 10 minute scene. But from the very opening, like I love that they start as late as possible. Right. Um, that's a, that's a, script a filmmakers a writers hardcore truth it should be anyway is start as late as possible dive right in and as part of that they ended up doing this scene like 99 times uh on the day of the shoot they stopped just short of 100 what and fincher is well known for doing this kind of thing where he likes a lot of takes and i think he's looking for that natural rhythm because if you're in the middle of a scene if you're in the middle of a conversation that's popping there's not these awkward pauses and like yeah. you and I, you know, right now talking is going to be a little bit different from, you know, 14 minutes ago talking yeah. like we're now in concert. We're in rhythm. Sure. And I think he's looking for that whenever he's going through all these crazy takes. But also a part of that, what he does um, and you, this is all in the behind the scenes like you can you can see this on the Blu-ray and, and I'll look for this stuff on YouTube and, and post it in the links um, at the com slash the social network. But what he does is from the very beginning, he has the very first take, he has everyone talking, like the extras, the background. I think he's pumping music in and he's making it as loud as he can in a natural, normal way so that the actors have to talk over it. Absolutely. So so wait, did he actually do that? Yes, but just for that first one or two takes. And then he has everyone shut the hell up. But now they know vocally, how loud should I be talking? Oh, so that okay. in post you go to insert and all that dialogue yeah. and it still plays. It, it doesn't feel like they're yeah. whispering to each other in a crowded bar. Yeah. 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 Okay. <laughs> because that usually bothers me, honestly. Well, just, so it's very similar to like the bar scene later on when he's talking to uh, Justin Timberlake or Absolutely. whatever his name is, Sean Parker. And they're, they're yelling. Okay. I remember the behind the scenes about that. Yeah. 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 Okay. And so, I mean, it's a really smart, you know, filmmaking technique because it's kind of like, I think a, uh, what are those groups called? The the 
barbershop quartets, right? Oh, yeah. They have their little harmonica or whatever, their pitch mm-hmm. pipe, and they play that, they get their tune, and then they sing their song. You're doing the exact same thing here with actors. You're allowing them to get their tune and their pitch, and now they can play their song. Mm-hmm. And especially with a Sorkin film, like you want all of that to be right from the get-go so that you can maintain that consistency. And so one of the things that amateurs or beginners kind of get wrong or – or at least exhaustively poor choices is going back to you start as late as possible. That means so can you explain? Yeah, explain that. Yeah, that means that we don't need to see your your character waking up and hitting his alarm clock, getting a tour through his bedroom, and seeing how he starts his day. Bump that. Where does the story really begin? Does it begin actually whenever he has a car wreck? You know. Gotcha. Um, so start the story. And this is from the beginning of your film, but also within the scenes itself. Just because your character has had a long day or whatever, we don't need to see him sighing at his you know, car walking into the house. Just cut to the kitchen where he's having the, the important conversation with his wife. And Sorkin is, I mean, he's wow, just that's... a master of his craft. But here he wastes no time. We, get, we learn, we're establishing characters within their element. And that's one of the things that makes you feel so immersed, so incredibly fast in this world is because we're in the middle of a bar. It's a college bar. We get all these contextual clues about who these two people are to each other in a lot of ways. It's not only just this is a girl I'm dating, but I feel intellectually superior to her. And if this is someone you're dating and you're treating her that way, how are you going to treat the rest of the world? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> right. Well, wow, I hadn't heard this. This is great. And so that's. That's really important, but they also get out as soon as possible. We spend six or seven minutes there establishing this, but it could be its own short film. You know, it yeah. plays so well as a scene in and of itself. And um, one of my first movies that I that convinced me to start trying acting was uh, Garden State, and oh, yeah. I really love that movie. And me too. I think it gets a lot of hate from you know the old heads who compare it to this film or that but for me it was just the perfect film at the perfect time i still love that film and reading zach braff's writing uh style he was like you know what i just wrote a scene that i didn't want it until i didn't want it to end and then i ended it you know yeah (laughs) you know leave them wanting more yeah and and so just using such an original way to establish your characters um i mean there's incredible films that don't even do this goodwill hunting doesn't do this You start in this bathroom with this long opening sequence, which is still effective. It's still doing something specific, but it's really different um, in this way because you're launched straight into a conversational gymnastics right? <laughs> competition. Right. And she even comments, you know, I feel like talking to you is running on a treadmill. Like, I don't know what's happening. <laughs> so do we. <laughs> so do we. And that's, I think, a Sorkin stamp of, of approval or whatever. Yeah, yeah. But then from there... We go straight to the opening montage of Mark walking home. Running. running. Yeah, in some he places runs. he runs. Yeah, no, he runs the whole way. Does he? The whole way. Holy crap. Yeah. So he's and motivated. He's not, and he's not even out of breath when he gets... <laughs> I don't know if that was on purpose. They did it on purpose, but uh, I don't know. That's hilarious. Maybe, maybe he's just in really good shape. Who knows? And so he runs home, yeah. and we're seeing him this whole time, and we can just feel... A little bit, I don't know, more intensity or I mean, it's a very mellow tune that we're hearing at that moment. But we're just now getting to the title sequence, which launches us into that first montage. Mark sitting down at his laptop in his dorm, looking at photos of girls. And we start intercutting that 
with this party, the final club party that have actual hot girls and actual rich frat boys who are doing everything that he wants to be doing because the distance between him and them is vast where he is versus where he wants to be because he can't join them. Uh, he brings them down with technology. This is the one tool, you know, at his disposal. And I don't know. I think maybe this is Sorkin's view of the world and he's symbolizing a changing of the guard because at this point, those are the, those are the kids you want to hang with. But by the end of the film or even half, you know, 30 minutes into it, Mark is that guy that everyone wants to hang around with now. Um, And I think it's also summarizing the Internet, right? Foreshadowing uh, the virality effect whenever he launches Face Smash. Uh, Yeah. (laughs) And also maybe hinting at the idea of privacy is no more, especially the privacy of partying. Um, Just watching the, the party go on with that and you're kind of merging these two concepts together. I love also uh, just interject the 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 way that Fincher um, when you cut to the, all the party shots they're all in slow motion and then you cut back to him and he's he's freakishly fast typing a bunch of stuff and he's talking really fast he's doing all these things and it cuts to the party and it's slow motion again mm. kind of like like. I'm not sure why, but I kind of got the feeling of like what he's doing is important and urgent in that moment. And what everyone else is doing just doesn't matter. And it's just like, that's a really great observation because I would argue that what, what they're also doing, um, that's probably absolutely true. Um, but they're also showing the old world versus the new, the old world is slow. It's in slow motion. It's in the past. It's behind. What he's doing is the future. It is urgent. It's now. It's much faster. It's lightning fast. Yeah. Um, Yeah. And so that's a. I hadn't noticed that before, but that Mm -hmm. is totally true. Yeah. Cool. Um, I think Sorkin. You know what? I tried to read this. Well, I did read it. I read this earlier this year, and for me, it was it was a really slow read um, because there's such a heavy amount of locations um, that on the page you're constantly reading slug lines these moments in the script that tell you interior exterior oh yeah where you are when you are there maybe any oh it's gotta be tough to read that dude because there's so much cutting cutting that i was just like this is a really tough read but it just shows also that he's such a master of his craft yeah because it edits absolutely beautifully um there's such a great ebb and flow of the scenes with the with the high amount of editing and another thing that so i'll get onto the the tropes now sorkin if you've watched i mean newsroom uh west wing a few good men i mean he's done his library is just crazy but i would say everything outside of maybe moneyball uh has such familiar styles i don't i I don't have good words for him i just call them sorkinisms like he likes to do these things that make the one character looks stupid while another character looks brilliant. Um, it's like these little stupid setups. They're in the, the meeting towards the beginning and they're like, uh, Rashida Jones is talking to him. She says the site got 2,200 hits within two hours. Oh, and thousand. What? 22,000. You know, he does, that's, that's literally verbatim what they do. Yeah. It's like, what? You're blowing my mind. 22,000. And I get that is a, that is a great number, but he likes to do these little stupid enhancements by, yeah, yeah. by with the word what, you know, and oh. suddenly she's impressed now. 
Whereas, and we should be impressed. And we should be impressed. And, I mean, that's fine. It just, I guess I've seen it so many times, I roll my eyes when I see it. <laughs> <laughs> because he's, do, he's doing this thing, and he does it a lot, where most of the time, and it's probably not an absolute rule, but a lot of the time he's, he's using this technique to impress a girl with your wit and intelligence. Like, normally the character is going to be a guy talking to a girl, and it happens between guys too, but it's always a, a certain smugness because you have this this kind of idiot and deaf people setups, right? That's setting you up for this mic drop moment where someone early in the scene will reference like this quandary or this question, like I can't figure out, you know, who was the Roman emperor between 200 AD and um, and then two minutes later, as that character is walking out, your main guy is like Caesar. What? Julius Caesar was the emperor or whatever. Yeah. You know? <laughs> it's pretty good. You should be a writer. It's so annoying. It's like, come yeah, on, man. Yeah. Uh, it just feels over overwritten. And in this film, I mean, he does, he does it a few times, but the, the earliest one is where after face mash, um, we go to him sitting in, you know, in this kind of tribunal with the school and he's having this back and forth with the, uh, the it administrator and he's like, well, if you didn't really know what you were looking for, you would have seen it written on my dorm room window. And, oh, yeah, right. And it's like, oh, he looks brilliant now. It's like, what yeah. does that even mean? He's supposed to be looking for an algorithm when he's looking for high amount of traffic? That's that's a non sequitur. And it's just, a, yeah. it's just a witty thing to try to shut someone down and have a mic drop. Mm-hmm. And he does the same thing in the uh, the dorm or the classroom where he starts walking oh, off. Oh, <laughs> Better men than you have tried and failed, Zuckerberg. Yeah, and then he gives him the answer. Right. Two two quantum bits, two. <laughs> I want, no, keep going. I forget. Yeah, okay. All right. <laughs> but yeah, he does that quite a bit. And I mean, it works. I'm sure for the average viewer, it's like, oh, that was good. Like, ooh, he's a badass. But I guess I'm just exhausted it. of it. So um, do you have another one? Uh, not in terms of those, but there is something that I picked up on this last time. Oh, okay. That was, it made me still respect with all of the weight in the world of what Aaron Sorkin is is capable of. I haven't read the book. Uh, I think it's called The Accidental Billionaire. Um, ben Meserich, who I've listened to several interviews, he's a really talented writer from what I gather. And so I don't know if this was in the book, but I somehow doubt it. There's this thing that Mark does repeatedly throughout the film, which is repeating people. And we recognize it watching the film. It's not like it goes undetected by us. We hear him say, uh, you would do that for me, right? Erica says that in the opening scene whenever he makes this, I mean, really oh, yeah, condescending right. comment. Like, you know, besides, you should be more kind to me because I'm going to introduce you to people that you wouldn't or- ordinarily get to meet. And she says, you would do that for me? <laughs> yeah, we're dating. <laughs> you know, yeah. And then she just breaks it off. Well, let me tell you, we're not. <laughs> yeah, right. And then later on when they're in the uh, – that entry room with the Winklevi and Max Mangella. Gosh, I forgot his name. Um, but they're third musketeer. And he says that to them whenever they're like, we could help you re- rehabilitate your image. Um, he says, you would do that for me. And then, I mean, there's several moments. There's a moment where Erica says, want to get some food that Mark says later on as a way of deflecting. He actually says it in that conversation right back at her later on. Um, which struck me this time. Last time it felt like he was, every other time I've watched this film, when he says, want to get some food, it felt like he was just trying to distract her. 
what I think is actually happening is she says that early. She says, uh, want to get some food? And he's like, I'm sorry if my conversation about final clubs is boring you. And she's like, no, I just think I've missed a birthday since then. <laughs> and she's just, she was trying to change the, the topic, but then he gets frustrated with her and he's using it as a light jab. He's like, no, let's, oh, don't you want to change the subject anymore? Um, I feel like he's, he's throwing it back in her face. But he does it repeatedly throughout the film whenever in that very same conversation with the Winklevi uh, about rehabil- rehabilitating his image, they read later on in the paper that he said that as a part oh, of right, yeah. why he wanted to start Facebook. Yeah. Um, and then later on, he also says it with Eduardo whenever, oops, and then he yeah. throws it right back at him like, oops. And what I love about this is that what it implies is that He's unoriginal. Yeah, exactly. He's, he's taking, taking people's from others. ideas. Yeah. He's taking yeah. their thoughts, but he's also reusing them in these vindictive ways. He's throwing these moments in people's faces. And that's a scripted thing. That's something that's happening throughout the script. But there's also a cool thing that kind of caught my attention, which was when they were having that party, right when they get out to L.A., L, not L.A., uh, the Valley. Yeah, California. California. Uh, they're having that pool party out back, you know, and they wreck the, the chimney. They're playing California Love. Uh-huh. It's a rock remake. <laughs> it's a remake. It's a ripoff. Uh, and yeah, it's kind yeah. of playing right into that theme of stealing and, and yeah. repurposing someone else's ideas. Um, and oh, I think that's interesting. That's, I just thought that was like... Trent's touch on it. Yeah. That's, that's interesting. It plays right into the theme because I think this film, the theme of the film or the takeaway is the irony of a guy creating the largest social network in the world. And yet he has no friends himself because he wants, he's trying to create that thing he can't get into. He's trying to create a final club that he can finally be a part of. And that's his motivation throughout the film is trying to make friends through creating something amazing yeah and it's just really ironic that this guy who has made a billion 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 million times over business on networking and social uh cohesiveness has no friends <laughs> has no social aspect <laughs> yeah in his life it's, oh yeah it's really amazing um that yeah so i think all of that really comes in play with uh sorkin and his ability to to see, and obviously just the, the interweaving that the story itself does, yeah. is mind-boggling. Because so did he, did he write that in, all of that, or was that like, you know, a thing that Fincher wanted to do, bounce back and forth and stuff between what's you know the past and you know the current like you know uh, meetings of him being sued kind of thing. No, that's fair. Uh, that's a good question. I would probably lean towards towards Sorkin um, just being the first guy to take the crack at it and saying, well, what are we really discussing? What are some interesting ways to reassert that throughout the film? Mm -hmm. And then, I mean, he lightly does it, right? It it doesn't feel heavy handed or overbearing or even obvious. No. Yeah. Uh, It's just this thing that kind of happens and we laugh to ourselves because we recognize, Oh yeah. Yeah. He's just repeating what that chick said because she broke his heart and that's all he can think about. But I think there's a I think that's the top layer of what I was thinking when I saw it um, was that she had an effect on him and he's still remembering those words or echoing yeah. in his head. But I think there's another layer to it, yeah. um, which is the whole I'm unoriginal. 
So uh, speaking of being original, I'm going to ask you this. Uh, I, we kind of touched on, talked about it outside of this, but why use the same guy for the Winklevi? Why not use just, you know, a real pair of twins that look very similar? Obviously, you can find some. He just wanted to, he wanted Army Hammer. Like this, I, I doubly want this guy, you know, or get somebody that looks very much like him. Like why, why go through all the effort? Because it was amazing. It was amazing how they did that. Yeah, and there's some incredible behind the scenes. I'll I'll dig them up and post them onto the uh, yeah. to the site. Please do so I can see them. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I mean because he does go through great links to hide because that's always going to be the secret of something like this is to hide the effect. Right. You know, uh, don't always use the exact same effect. Don't just use a split screen um, where you're shooting one shot. It's stable. It's locked off. There's no movement in the camera. And you'll shoot it with one actor, with your main actor, Army Hammer. He's going to be on the left for this first take. And then on the second take, we're going to put him on the right. And then in post, we can stitch those two scenes together. Because if you do that too much, people are going to catch on to it because there's going to be certain interactions that those two characters are never crossing that boundary. And it's going to eventually take you out of the world. Whereas all these other things he's doing, right, the face replacements, um, the singles, uh, of I'm going to do a tight on him and a tight on him. I'm going to put them across the room from each other, but keep their eye line really consistent. Um, things like that, that help you just forget that, Oh yeah, this is, this is the same dude. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but there's also, there's also shots of like, and I guess they, they use face replacement for it, but, uh, of them in the boat right. together. Yeah. Camera is either, even if it's locked off, they're like touching, they're, they're crossing each other. Like how, that's just post? Yeah, that's just post. What they did was they set up this this rig that had, I don't know, I mean, I'm sure there's a count on it, but it looked like 100 cameras that were taking these photos and or video and along with these face tracking algorithms so that they could grab every piece of his face and no matter which way the camera was going to be facing, they could replace it. So no matter what the actor does, we can still turn with it and light it the way we want. Unbelievable. Uh, And it's expensive as to why you would do that. I think it made a lot of sense for him to get uh, an unknown actor, which Army Hammer, even since then, hasn't had his breakout role. The closest he got was The Lone Ranger, which wasn't a great movie. And he's still looking for that big big role. Um, But... If, imagine if you had put a main actor in there, whatever, Mark Wahlberg is playing the Winklevoss twins. And now you're just seeing, you're like, I know that's Mark Wahlberg just copy-pasted. <laughs> yeah, sure. Right? Yeah. And so you want an unknown. Maybe, I wonder if he did look for twins. That would have made sense. Oh, maybe he did and he just didn't find anybody that, that like you yeah. know, lit his fire the way that... Maybe, because he's such a specific director, he always knows exactly what he wants from shot to shot. Yeah. Like I've heard stories that he walks up to the the shot wherever he's going to be setting up the tripod and he like with his fingers says I want the lens here and he'll hold out his finger and like what you see is normally a, a peace sign he just kind of uses those 
the those first two fingers to point in the direction of where the lens is going to be pointing. And I don't know if it's the first AC, but one of the, the camera ops will come over and measure his hand to the ground in order to get the distance right of where he's wanting it. And if it's off by like one or two inches, he'll come back and say, this isn't right. I said here. <laughs> wow. Okay. Because he knows yeah. specifically what he wants to get on on camera and that's that's a level of craftsmanship i will never get to yeah i'm maybe i don't want to i don't know because that's well there's i think there's good and bad about it right i mean there's uh i think that the the bad comes if you if you're so like into the detail that you lose the story Mm -hmm. right um not to get off topic too much but it's it's similar in music like there there's a a producer named Mutt Lang whom you may or may not have heard of but he uh, was I'm not sure if he still is married to uh, Shania Twain I know her yeah I'm sure you do <laughs> uh and but he he was a really great producer uh but notorious for that kind of thing he did Def Leppard's uh, Pour Some Sugar on Me and that whole album they he was so meticulous that instead of playing chords they would play one note at a time making sure it was perfectly in tune and then he'd stitch them together into a chord they it almost it almost broke up the band making that making that record holy crap yes if you listen to those records they are so like and i am not a crazy about pour some sugar on me <laughs> let me just say but i will say it, it it there's not one cent out of tune in that entire record so you brought up shania which this will be the last thing we'll get back on topic but <laughs> we got to talk about shania we do fast. because actually i read like one or two weeks ago i didn't realize this at the time but when she released uh, that huge album in the late 90s, like 98, 99, yeah, whatever, right. uh, apparently she released like two or three versions of it, uh, the country version, the pop version, and then like a Bollywood version. Oh, yeah. Holy crap. Like that's yeah. that's meticulous and foresight and brilliant. I that mean, was Mutt Lang. Was it really? Absolutely. Holy yeah, cow. Yeah. I mean, she might have she might have like – like said, yeah, let's let's do that. But I guarantee you that idea came from him. He is so detailed and dialed in, and everything has a purpose, and very much like uh, Fincher That's in that amazing. regard. In that regard, anyway. And so back to the script. So what was really what struck me this time is Sean Parker has a very late entrance into this movie. We're yeah. literally about halfway through. I I would imagine it it is literally halfway through because it's a two hour runtime. He comes in 57 minutes in and I would account for another like five minutes of credits. So I would be willing to bet he's almost exactly halfway through uh, this film whenever he enters. And it's, it's crazy because he's a core character and we have this moment, right? Where he's waking up after uh, sleeping with his girl and he asked this is when he discovers facebook and zuckerberg and that moment whenever he finds zuckerberg there's this light push in and i'll talk about the cinematography here in a little bit but i thought that was really cool because fincher is very judicious in his use of movement maybe to a fault i don't know but he's very he's very specific i'll jump 
forward a little bit in time whenever the first time he actually gets to meet Mark during the, uh, the quote unquote Shonathon mm-hmm. um, is really great because if you watch the framing and composition of that scene, you can see who's connecting uh, Mark and Sean and who isn't Eduardo and everyone else. Right. Uh, because Eduardo is kind of on, on his own island. He's not buying into it. And they compose him on his own island. Like when we cut to him, he's usually by himself. And then we have the other three in their own shot. Um, and what's really fascinating, I don't think I ever noticed this before, was that whenever he has that moment, drop the the, just Facebook. It's cleaner. Eduardo is actually in that shot. Sean is really tall and he's towering and he's in the middle of the frame, right? He's taking up all the space. But Eduardo is low and on the very edge of the frame, slightly out of focus. And I think that's a little bit of foreshadowing that Eduardo is the trout and Mark is the 3,000 pound Marlin. Yeah, yeah. For Sean. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Because they're having their own conversation about we want to be the Marlin, not the trout. But Sean was actually having his own conversation about I'm targeting the Marlin here. Yeah. Not the trout. And. Then later on, uh, when we get to Silicon, that house, the Silicon Valley house, when Eduardo arrives, this is a super telling moment um, when Sean sets those two cocktails down. He sets them down on a laptop. And it's very, it, it tells a lot about the way he sees technology. He doesn't respect technology, and he only really sees it as something that supports his vices, his drug habit. Right. Um, by contrast, Eduardo actually contributed to the algorithm for Face Smash. Um, he had his own money, money right, that he made based off his ability to predict and use algorithms to to tell gas futures or oil futures. So that contrast between these two, one guy is just a kind of a snake, snake oil salesman, because Facebook was founded by two Shans. Sean Parker, yes, gosh, I already forgot the other Sean's name. But there was a that's how that's how much they've they've taken uh, Sean Parker through this movie as the guy. Right. Whenever he meets that uh, the girl and she's like, Sean Parker invented uh, Napster, invented Napster. Right. And she's like, he not you. And he's like, no, I am Sean Parker. Pleased to meet you. Um, Sean Fanning was the actual I think him and his brother did a lot of the the actual coding, Um, but I don't really know all their history, but I know that it's a little false to say that Sean is the, is just the founder of Napster. Right. Yeah. There's another Sean behind that maybe is even more significant. Um, Mm. And I think that's just interesting that it's taking place in a film about stealing originality and creativity and passing it off as your own. And so my favorite scene is probably when they get to the club. Right, we talked about that earlier, where it's really loud. Oh yeah, and that mix is really incredible too, right? It's, it's like amazing. You, it's like you, uh, and they talk about this in the behind the scenes, but it's like you're straining to hear what they're saying. You can hear every single word, but it's just on the edge, yeah, of being able to make it out. Yeah, and I yeah. love that. And what's cool about this scene too is they're basically discussing Eduardo's irrelevance. Or, I mean, they literally are at one point, and that he's holding Mark back. This is the scene where Sean reveals himself as the villain. He is the villain. He's our bad guy. And they do this in a lot of, they, I think they're indicating this in a lot of different ways because there's really no main bad guy in this film. It's just Mark going through all these court cases and replaying the past and figuring out 
how did everything get to be the way it is right now? Um, but in this scene, in this club scene, the light is changing colors. It's hiding everyone's true color. Like you're constantly seeing these neon lights and it's also lit from underneath. And it's not hard, hard lighting. Yeah. yeah, but it's, it's, it's lit from underneath and it, that lighting is usually reserved for monsters. Mm-hmm. That's monster lighting. It's scary. Like whenever you're sitting around the campfire as a kid, yeah. you put the flashlight under your chin, right? And yeah. suddenly you have these scary shadows crawling across your face and they're not doing it hard, hardcore, but they're doing it. And it's inserting these ideas. And it's also interesting because a club is a place where people pretend to be someone else in order to charm and seduce you to get what they want. That's the nature of a club. Yeah. <laughs> That's what people are there That's to do. the only reason you go to a club. <laughs> right. Yeah. And at this moment, for Mark, it represents a very significant move closer to that opening montage. The gap with the party and the hot women. Now, all of a sudden, he's partying and he's got these Victoria's Secret models hanging around. Uh, and he's starting to feel a little bit more included. And he still has this very light tether to the idea of Erica. And mm-hmm. it's almost like you could feel Sean snip it. <laughs> he just kind of yeah. cuts it and it's like, no, okay, maybe there's something else. And so Sean reveals himself as the villain. And I'll, you know what? I'll cut to the, uh, the cinematography. So throughout the film, there's a lot of slow, steady movements, a lot of locked off shots. And that's just kind of the way Fincher shoots. He's, his style is usually going to be a little bit more sterile. Uh, we're observers. Uh, there's not a lot of dramatic push-ins. Those things are used very sparingly so that whenever you do use it, it's really dramatic. Like the the final scene where Eduardo finds out he's been had and he was walking over to smash Mark's laptop and get his attention. Suddenly we go from maybe we've seen one or two push-ins throughout the film to suddenly quick motion. We're dollying back Mm -hmm. with Eduardo looming in the frame tall and it's moving fast. And all of that is in contrast to everything we've set up. So suddenly it's like, oh, this is real. This is going down. And I think the only handheld shot I I picked up on the film was at the house party at the end where Sean walks to the door to see the cops coming. Then whenever the cops come in, you see Sean step into this false red lighting that's lit from underneath to kind of reveal him as the bad guy once again. Mm -hmm. And so he's kind of passed himself off for a period but suddenly he's revealing himself once again that he is our villain and he gets on the phone, right? And Mark is like reevaluating all his decisions. He's yeah. holding up that business card that was the direct influence of, of Sean. And he's like, God, what did I do? Wow. I never thought of that. I mean, I, yeah, I did think of him as the, as the villain, but I, it wasn't like – I did think of him as a villain, but I didn't think of him as, as like a um, – villain in like a, I don't in a, a regular villain sense, you right. know? Yeah. Um, just kind of a jerk. That's just tagging. He along. did almost take down Facebook at certain points, you know? Mm-hmm. And so, so yeah, it does make sense. But the, yeah, the lighting did tell that story really well too. And it's done so smooth and effortlessly that it never draws attention to itself. Yeah. That is what blew me away. Cause I've seen this, I've probably watched this 15 or 20 times. <clears throat> And none of those things occurred to me. Uh, I mean, most of what I've talked about in, in this podcast episode has never occurred to me throughout this film. For those who are actually curious, what I do whenever I'm taking these notes is I start writing things down that may mean nothing. 
but then by the end of it, suddenly I'm like, Mark has been repeating people a lot. (laughs) (laughs) What does that mean? And then you can just kind of start drawing your own conclusions. Yeah. Um, so in the, in one of my favorite scenes is the, um, is the race scene, the rowing scene. And can you explain what that is that they do? how they shoot that, what it is, because it drives me nuts. It just looks like, it looks like a model, yeah. you know? And then, but except for one strip, I don't know, it, it makes me crazy. There's a really awesome behind the scenes, and I'll post it on the, if I can find it, I'll post it on the site. What they're doing is they they had a very small window of time to get that shot because everything was set up for, you know, the race. You had these crowds to the sides, so stylistically, they kind of had to lean into their inability to get the coverage that they really wanted. And in order to do that, what they did was took a bunch of photos and in post, as they're doing these profile shots of them rowing, they're stitching these photos of people into the background. And so that you don't know that they're photos, they're just blowing them out of focus. <laughs> That way, you're also focused on the people, but more importantly, you're not focused on, oh, this isn't a real crowd, or this isn't a very active crowd. Seriously? And I'm sure they probably staged one or two pieces of movement to help sell the effect, as a smart visual effects you know, expert would do. But yeah, that was one of the reasons that they're using what I think is tilt-shift photography, which is that effect of... Everything looks like a model and looks very tiny. If you've seen the beginning of the Sherlock Holmes, uh, you know, with Martin Freeman and yeah. Benedict Cumberbatch, mm-hmm. uh, the, the beginning of that show's intro is that's tilt shift photography. Um, they're using, if you've ever seen a m- macro photography, right, where you have a, a flower and a bee is sitting on the flower, but the bee is huge and he's big in the frame, but there's a very shallow depth of field. You can't really do that in real life because right there you have a very big camera shooting a very tiny object. So it's easy to get things out of out of depth. But when you're shooting very large objects like a building or a, or a bunch of buildings, like you're going to sit uh, a, a camera on the Empire State Building, you're going to take a shot of New York. Well, let's say there's a building right across the street and then a building behind that building on the other side of that street. Well, if you get that first building into, into focus, that second building is going to be in focus too. There's just, right. your lens just isn't big enough to get that, get that focal distance. And so what they're doing is recreating that through post. Uh, and maybe there's lenses that can do this. I, I don't know. I've never used one of those, but I've done this where you recreate it in post. Uh, and it's a, it's a fun effect. I mean, suddenly cars look like, you know, Tonka toys. <laughs> yeah. And micro machines. Uh, and so it's just a very interesting effect that, th- that they wow. decided to use in this moment as a clever disguise of the reality of their shooting conditions. Yeah. Wow. Okay. So, so there wasn't necessarily a reason for using it in that, in that, for that one scene other than they just, I really don't it. think so. Okay. I, I don't, I didn't detect any thematic. I mean, maybe you could say that, they're just really focused and that everything is the world is drowned away. Um, but I think that would just be like, you got it. We're, we're making stuff up. We're backing our way into an Mm -hmm. explanation at that point. And, uh, the, the music in that, 
I love there's uh, I mean this film is full of amazing behind the scenes stuff and I'll post every ounce of it I can but it was cool listening to Trent talk about the development process of that because I always forget the name of that I forget it I, I looked I tried to look it up and I I look it up every it. time and it's and I forget it it's, every time. It's that that Halloween song, yeah. that like dance of like the 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 ghouls or something. I don't know. It's, yeah, yeah, yeah. I always think of I grew uh, up the, listening to it. the trailer for Needful Things uh, from Stephen King way mm-hmm. back in the day because mm-hmm. they used that song. It was just huge at the time. We'll post it in the yes. In we'll, the show notes. we'll post that we'll in the show it. notes. But apparently, Fincher was like, do something kind of video gameish. Um, and Trent came back and apparently was like way too eight bit. <laughs> He's like too much, bro. <laughs> Bring it back. <laughs> Video game, digital eight bit. I'm in done. He, that's like right up his alley. <laughs> yeah. And, and so it was just a lot of back and forth. He said out of everything he worked on, that one took the longest to, to arrive at. Um, and that a lot of the other stuff just clicked right away and it was just fine tuning. But he spent the most time working on that song, which is already written. <laughs> that would be frustrating as an artist. Yeah, I mean to take to take something uh, like something as old as that musically and make it modern, but not too modern. Mm-hmm. Is modern meaning digital? Is is got to be hard? I mean, it, it's got to be really hard, you know. But he he did it so brilliantly, especially like at the end where you hear all the the crackling and the dirtiness. Like, you know stuff like just subtle things like that and in using a little bit more intense uh um, uh uh, instruments instead of just an orchestra you know like using guitar in there and using um uh, synth pads and stuff in there and and uh uh, like jigsaw pads and stuff it's it was perfect no that's a really good point because that song you could say is emulating the film also because you have this old song it's really really old song i don't know how old i would imagine a couple hundred years but it's being repurposed in a new digital way and much like the theme of this film taking the idea the the old idea of final clubs and turning it into facebook um it's being emulated in a way that's hurting these guys because they lose this race they lose the i mean depending on how you look at it they they lost the race with facebook with their own harvard connect or whatever and that's also their way they're in they're in harvard but their their legacies right their fathers went to harvard they have old money and so in a in a lot of ways that song is you know symptomatic of everything they're going through right now and yeah. mark even says it at a certain point he's like the winklevi are just used to winning and, and they're not they're not used to losing yeah exactly so whose side do you take Ooh, I am on Eduardo's. I hate credit thieves, man. That's a mm-hmm. that's a very big point. I hate lies in general. Like lies are extraordinarily offensive to me, and credit thieving is just w- another version of a lie. And I think sometimes people do it inadvertently, and that's okay. I think that happens. Um, but I usually try to bend over backwards to give people credit when I can. I'm not gonna say I've been you know, like angel perfect my whole life, uh, but I make it a really big point, you know, to try to give credit, you know, for ideas or thoughts or whatever to be inclusive. And, and so, but Eduardo knew that that he stole that from the Winklevi. Maybe, yeah. I guess. Oh, he did because he saw the 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 
the uh, cease and desist letter. He, and saw, he asked him about it. Right. And he got placated. He was like, okay, fine. I, I believe you. I'm trusting you, my friend, who's telling me otherwise. Well, he said he trusted him, he trusts him because he shouldn't worry about it. Hmm. Not because he didn't do it. Not because he didn't steal it. He, he stole it. He yeah. stole that idea. Mm-hmm. And the only reason I say he stole the idea is because he made exactly, initially, right. exactly what they were talking about. If he would have taken it and, and not done it for schools, done it for something else or whatever, then, then maybe not, but probably still. Yeah. But he made Harvard Connection. That's he fair. stole it. And so I, and I hate to be on the Winklevi side and I'm not because <laughs> I'm not a Winklevi fan, but, but, and, and they, they handled it poorly. Like they, sure. one should have had him sign an NDA Two, um, they should have, uh, uh, sued him immediately and they didn't, uh, or given the cease and desist immediately or whatever, but they held off because of, Harvard, it's not what Harvard <laughs> men do, bull stuff like that. But um, but I feel like they are, more than anybody, they're in the right. I think that's fair. I don't really I don't have know. a strong argument otherwise. Yeah, I, I don't um, know. I mean, I, it's not that I don't empathize with Mark, right? He Sure. He had an idea, too, and it's a different flavor of the same idea, uh, mildly, and maybe he really just didn't want to be in business with these guys. Uh, maybe he saw all the work in coding. He's like, I have all these ideas that's going to make it better, and I don't want them to have it, so I'm just going to do it myself. Yeah, it's it's the idea that he strung them along instead of just saying, guys, this isn't working for me. That I think he could have handled that a lot better. Um, but I do I do have a certain amount of empathy because. There's also nothing new under the sun. They were just creating MySpace and Friendster, um, these these ideas that had already been out there. Um, and so, yeah, I don't but, know. So, but him him creating it was his his like exactly what you were talking about earlier. His just regurgitation of other other people's either words or concepts or ideas or thoughts or whatever. Absolutely. But my asterisk to that is according to this script. Yeah. Oh, I'm not and saying absolutely. in real life. Right, right. Zuckerberg did Within this, the film. This way. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. yeah Mark, I'd, I'd Mark, I'm not, I'm not against you, Mark. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so yeah, that pretty much wraps it up. So my recommendation for the week is Steve Jobs. What I loved about Steve Jobs, and I think it's a really good movie, but what I loved is I've always been curious. My favorite director is Danny Boyle, but I also really, really love David Fincher, and their styles could not be more different, uh, whereas Fincher is very stoic and, and rock solid in his movements and his camera angles, like crazily so. Danny Boyle likes a little bit more camera movement these hard Dutch angles in every film I think I've ever seen of Danny Boyle's. He has this really hardcore, like 45 or 90 degree. What is it? Uh, like a 45 degree Dutch angle that he shoots in every single movie, uh, which is basically you're tilting the camera off axis by like 45 degrees. And it's very dramatic. Um, and so their styles are so different. And what I love about Steve jobs is I feel like I finally got to see what a David Fincher movie would look like if it was directed by Danny Boyle. <laughs> because that's a Sorkin script. Yeah. And Fincher was originally signed on to do it. And so I what feel happened? like... Uh, I think there was just some creative differences and he just got tired of dicking around with it. Oh, okay. 
And so Facebook, I feel like, is the Steve Jobs version of Steve Jobs. And Steve Jobs is Danny Boyle's version um, of the same script. And so I feel like I get to watch these two movies together and be like, oh, that's what that would look like. Very cool. (laughs) Very cool. Um, Okay, so I I originally wanted to recommend um, uh, Fight Club, Mm -hmm. but I changed my mind. Uh, I want to recommend The Defiant Ones on HBO, which I just finished. Uh, It is being a musician whether you're a musician or not it doesn't matter like just watching this if you're over 20 years old uh it's gonna blow your mind i mean even if you're under 20 and you just love music it's gonna blow your mind but just see it's it's it basically follows the the careers and lives of dr dre and jimmy Iovine, um who I mean, are the pioneers of the music business in every way. I mean, if you see all of all of the artists that Jimmy Iovine produced growing up and how he got started wor- working in the studio, it, it just mind blowing. It just is really mind blowing. Um, and I love Dre's story, but Jimmy's story to me is like every story that you ever hear of some kind of musician, like, Oh, I made it because this crazy thing happened and, and, or whatever it came from Jimmy Iovine and, and it came from his story. His story is that, and it's like a legendary. And, and so watching this is just incredible. And then seeing, you know, seeing all these artists that, that Dre brings in and how they, they made the music business and made their careers off of other people. I mean, obviously off of themselves and they were brilliant, but they needed other people and they were able to find brilliance in other people. Because that's a talent, man. Finding and seeing talent in someone else and helping shepherd that along, that's an incredible talent that can go understated. And I mean, I agree with you. Jimmy Iovine is the highlight just because I was more familiar with Dre's story. I mean, there were still beats and moments that I was like, holy crap, I didn't know about that. Mm-hmm. But Jimmy Iovine, about the extent of my knowledge was that, yeah, he's a really big A&R guy and yeah. uh, studio guy. Uh, and Obi Trice has a lyric <laughs> from the Miles soundtrack that every time I hear his name, I think, in the meantime, it's Jimmy Iovine time. <laughs> every time I hear his name, I think every, of that lyric. Yeah, he's brilliant. So, yeah, I recommend The Defiant Ones. Excellent recommendation because yeah. that is a phenomenal documentary. Yeah. Dope. So tune in next week. We're going to be doing the new, the last Star Wars movie, Rogue One, a Star Wars movie. Pretty excited about that. That's one of my favorite Star Wars films. I think so, too. That's kind yeah, of crazy. Didn't I expect know. that. At all, I've seen it like six times now. Right. It's it's, I've cried every time. It's yeah, it knocks you down. Yeah, be I'm sure. Not a crier. I'm not a, <laughs> not a crier. I, I did cry at Lion too. Damn, did you? I cried twice in one week. You become sentimental. Oh God. And your fatherhood. I'm such a baby. <laughs> Don't forget to subscribe and review us on iTunes, um, and also just leave us a note if there's a film coming up or. Any movie that you'd like us to cover, let us know. We'd love to to know about that. You can send us an email, info at thepestlepodcast.com. And also want to give some shout-outs. Ah, I don't have it pulled up. Next week, I'm going to do some shout-outs to people who have rated us on iTunes. That actually makes a really big difference. I know we harp on it a little bit at the end of every show, but uh, it really does help get some visibility. Um, and next week, I'm going to read off some of my favorite 
ratings. Uh, so jump on there. And if you want to go to the show notes for the social network, you can go to the pestlepodcast.com slash the social network. And we'll end it with a quote of the day by Aaron Sorkin. Trying to guess what the audience wants and then trying to satisfy that is usually a bad recipe for getting something good. Ooh, that, uh, man, that's a punch. And in being the a musician, that's a yeah, that's so true in every way. You got to you got to be honest with yourself and and with what you're trying to do. Yeah, just the whole idea of creating by committee is yeah, that's just ripe with pitfalls. Yeah. Uh, can I say something really fast about that, about that? There was a, uh, there's a really famous Frank Zappa interview where he talks about, uh, foreshadowing the death of the music industry. And this was back in the seventies might even been, nah, it's probably seventies might even been earlier, but, uh, where he talks about that. And he, he says, uh, that the music industry is going downhill. And the reason is, uh, the reason it's going to die is because you have, you have, new younger kids coming in being heads of A&R and, uh, and running music companies. And he's like, and he said, and you'd think, Oh, younger kids, they, you know, they're hip and everything. But the problem is they don't, they know, they think they know too much where you have these old guys who will sign someone like Frank Zappa and they'll say, I don't know what the hell it is. Put it out. See if it sells, you know, whatever. And, you know, smoke my cigar and make my money and maybe it'll sell. Who knows? Whatever. They don't know what they're doing. They're just business people. And then you have these new kids who love music and they, they love this, but they hate that because that's not their style or whatever. And then, you know, records come in and they're, they think, oh, I don't like this. So I don't want to put it out. It doesn't matter what you like. It doesn't. It, what matters is what the artist makes, and then you put that out, and that turns out to be the Frank Zappa, who is crazy. If you've ever listened to any Frank Zappa, you're, that it's nuts. It's off the wall, and it's amazing, and it's brilliant. But no one would sign or put out a record by Frank by a, a new artist named Frank Zappa today. So it, anyway, it's, and it's, he said this back in the seventies. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. The watering down of music. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Definitely. Wow. So that's a great note to go out on. Absolutely. So uh, uh, you guys go watch some movies, man. Yeah. This is Wes and Todd.